Welcome back to our final discussion on the foundational ideas of John Paul II's Theology of the Body. I'm joined once again to close us out by Bill Donahue of the Theology of the Body Institute and by my friends Patricia Delara-Smith and Connor Smith. So guys, welcome back to Credo Catholic. All right, good to be back. Thanks, Zach. Yeah, glad to be here. Thank you. Absolutely. We're going to talk about some um, some philosophical ideas that uh, have had wide purchase outside of the world of Christianity and have set themselves up over and against Christianity. So um, we're going to talk specifically about Gnosticism and Manichaeanism and talk about why those ideas are so dangerous, why they're still around today. They persisted for uh, literally millennia. And they really pose a, a big threat to the Catholic Church, not in the sense that, not in the final sense, right? I mean, they're not going to be victorious over the church, but in the sense that they can sort of hold captive the minds of many Catholics, and we can unwittingly or wittingly fall victim to their core claims. So we'll talk about a lot of those. Uh, I'm drawing, again, from Patricia's summaries of audiences 44 through 47, and I'll read those, and then we'll just dive into some of the discussion. So audience 44, it's a pretty pithy summary here. Manichaeanism is heresy. The body is not a source of evil. It's good, uh, but perhaps, um, you know, it's, it's pithy and it seems really straightforward, but but perhaps deceptively, uh, th that idea is deceptively complex. Um, so we'll talk about that. Number 45, Christ does not condemn like Manichaeanism does. On the contrary, he affirms the body and redeems the body in his incarnation. Audience 46, although the body has weak or base desires, the body is not weakness itself. The body is not defined by or necessarily controlled by arousal, emotions, whims, or desires. And number 47, the common understanding of eros or erotic settles for a divergence from its platonic, ethical, and theological definition. Christ calls us to the possible transcendent union of eros and ethos within the human heart. All right, that one um, is maybe most distinct from the first three. So let's unpack the first three first, and then we'll kind of close on the, the fourth one. So... With this idea of Manichaeanism, and I think we need to wrap in Gnosticism as well. Neo-Gnosticism is really prevalent today, so we need to talk about that. So how can we distinguish, with respect to the human person, Christianity from Gnosticism or Manichaeanism? Patricia and Connor, we'll start with you guys on this question. Sure, thanks. So Christianity loves both the total body and the soul, as we've been discussing in the past three episodes and recognizes them as both good and definitional to our humanity. And Gnosticism and Manichaeism reject the body, believe that it's bad, and that the body prevents humans from attaining salvation. And it believes that humans are trapped by the body, whereas Christians believe that the body is redeemed and that the body is integral to our salvation. Connor, anything to add on that point? No, I think that was uh, pretty succinct. Christianity, body good. Gnosticism, <laughs> manichaeism, body bad. Material world bad. Yeah, I mean, that is. I mean, like I said, it's it's a it's pithily stated. Uh, I think it's it's a, at least the manichaeanism idea is more complex and sometimes more attractive because we often want to associate our body with our badness and our soul, or sort of animating principle with our goodness. And what we end up doing, and, and this is what one of the audiences, specifically number 46, is about, right, is we end up we end up associating or identifying our body with its desires, right? So, um, you know, we are not in this, in this wrong framework. We are not more than our desires or our instincts. We are our desires or our instincts. That's wrong. Um, it's also, I think, it leads to, it's, it's wrong for two reasons. One, it's not simply the case that you can reduce the human person to, or the human body to desires and instincts. But two... Uh, it it ends up 
uh, making all of our desires and instincts be bad. And you find this especially in um, Eastern traditions, uh, Eastern mysticism, not not Christian mysticism, uh, that you know it attempts to um, uh, attempts to avoid all instincts, right? Avoid all desires. Um, you know, avoid food for extended periods of time because the mere desire for food is bad, right? And so Christianity says no, the the, the desires themselves are not bad, right? We can act on these desires in wrong ways. But these desires are, are are ordinated and created by God uh, for our good. But Bill, anything else to add on this um, Manichaeanism and Gnosticism point? Yeah, I mean, I, I think when we look at it, it's it's really um, at the center of fallen man, or what John Paul would refer to as historical man. Manichaeism, Gnosticism is uh, it's like ground zero for us in our brokenness. And so it's important to say, okay, well, how this happened? So John Paul, the, the great breath of fresh air that comes from TOB is that he says, we aren't historical man and woman only. There was an origin. So uh, in the origin or original man meditation, our body and soul were in a, in a harmony. So, and let me get a little philosophical here. Like you've got your sensitive appetites and your spiritual appetites, right? Uh, there's a hierarchy God made us in. So, um, the spiritual appetites or powers of the soul would be like the intellect, the will, the memory and imagination. And then the sensitive or bodily appetites are sort of at the base, you know, what you can hear, smell, taste, touch. God made us incarnate. We talked about this. He placed us in a garden. And so knowledge comes to us through our senses, Aquinas says, like the world comes up through our fingertips, literally into our nose, in our eyes and ears. And we... So it comes up and are into the powers of our soul, and then it goes all the way to praise God for the gift of this life. Um, original sin does this like the hierarchy becomes anarchy. We get flipped, and our bodily appetites now just go haywire. And so we get these distortions. We think that, oh, this is bad then, right? So we have these uh, Gnostic thoughts that I got to get rid of the shell of this body that keeps getting me into trouble and go to the light. Um, you know, and become a spirit. This goes back to the ancient um, Greeks, even this idea of Plato, like we're trapped in a prison of the body and we have to get back to the, the archons or, you know, the light. So it's important to set that stage like this. God in the beginning wanted this harmony. Um, he wanted this, to, this material world to be, and our bodies to be locuses, places where we meet him. Um, and there's nothing bad or dirty about that. Again, behold, it is very good, not very bad. It's very good. Well, let's continue on that and talk about the Genesis account where after God creates on every single day, he sees that it was good. And this tells us that the natural order is good, uh, at least originally, right? Uh, and then we have the incarnation. So let's talk about the, the sort of nexus between the incarnation, what the incarnation tells us about our created order uh, and what we learn in the Genesis account. So how does the incarnation reiterate the fact to us that the natural order is good? Bill, I'll start with you this time. Awesome. Well, there's a, there's a, there's a scripture verse that really uh, is the antidote to all of the brokenness, and it's 1 John 4, 2. So uh, John's first letter, chapter 4, verse 2. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. 
Okay, the, the incarnation is the great stamp of approval, you might say, that it is good, it is good, it is good. And be not afraid to um, embrace this great gift of the body. So the incarnation is God taking on the body, becoming his own work, not for a stretch of time just to fix our problems, you know, redeem us and go back to heaven, but forever married to the body. So, man, the incarnation just proclaims with exclamation points, all caps, body good, body good. And I, I just want to throw real quick a quote from C.S. Lewis from The Four Loves. I love this. C.S. Lewis writes, eat this, drink this, you know, quoting from John 6. God seems to descend deepest into nature when he intends to lift us highest. Blood and guts and glands and genes and things of that sort don't repel him. See, we, we get repelled sometimes with our body, you know, like, ew, you know, and dirt and blood and guts and sweat and ew, you know, we have the ew factor <laughs> when it should be the awe factor. It should be, wow, and God became man and God sweat and wept and all this stuff. Uh, the incarnation is a ceaseless point of, of wonderment and meditation and prayer. Like we will never even exhaust the, the great gift of the word becoming flesh. Yes, absolutely. Fully agree. Thanks, Phil. So I was just also going to just add on that, that um, the idea that really God fully intended the creation of humans and body and soul. And we talked a little bit about that in our last episode, that this is really part of our identity and what makes us humans. And um, agreeing with, of course, the fact that we are completely reaffirmed then by Christ and the incarnation. And the other thing I was thinking about um, when you said this is that it wasn't necessary, of course. I mean, it's like our salvation could have come in so many other ways, I'm guessing. Um, But this is the way that God chose and very specifically becoming and taking our flesh yeah, and you know, I'm thinking about um, how this also tells us about our human weakness because, Bill, I was totally nodding along with your points about how we sometimes get disgusted with our own bodies, right? Like, this is this is gross what we do, or you know, if you spend enough time in a medical care setting, you might find yourself getting a little bit queasy when you encounter certain things like blood, et cetera. Um, but I also find myself getting frustrated with my own weakness a lot of the time, just like physical weakness, right? Like, I wish I could, I wish I could lift more weights at the gym. I wish I could run faster. I wish I could do this thing or, you know, the, the, uh, over the past month I've had a nagging foot injury, right? Like I wish I didn't have this foot injury. This is really annoying. And it's, it's annoying to be weak in this sense. Right. Uh, but I'm, I'm thinking, uh, that makes me think two things, right? The first is second, second Corinthians 12, nine, where Paul talks about how, how God's grace is made, um, perfect in weakness. His grace is sufficient for us because his power is made perfect in weakness. Um, and, and that helps us understand the incarnation, right? Because it's through our weakness that, uh, that Christ can redeem us. Um, but then also to go along with what you were saying, Patricia, God intended to make us this way, right? So, so we're not intended to fly, for example, right? I mean, in one sense, I could say that the inability for me to fly is a weakness of mine. Like I would love to fly like a bird, right? It'd be, it'd be pretty fun, pretty cool. Uh, but that's not what God intended for us, right? So we can look at the natural order and see also what God intends and does not intend for us. And I think that's another important thing. And so that then helps us understand why certain efforts, uh, like we talked about transhumanism a couple episodes ago, right? Why transhumanism is bad, because it is it is trying to transcend the natural limitations that God has ordained for us. Uh, and I think that's another another sort of really important thing to tack onto this understanding of the Genesis account, right? God saw that it was good, 
um, not just because it was perfect to the way he created it, but also because it was exactly the way he wanted it to be, right? Um, and, and so I think that's important to, to remember when we're reading the Genesis account. Let's talk a little bit more about this. Um, you know, I, I mentioned this already that many faith traditions, especially in the East that are non-Christian, have talked about how every desire we have is, is imperfect uh, and is evil, in fact. And that's the lie of Manichaeanism, and it's closely linked to Gnosticism. But how do we reconcile as Christians? Um, how does the theology of the body help us reconcile this idea that though we have evil desires, um, though we do bad things, uh, we are not evil, right? That the body is not weakness itself just because the body has these desires spring up within us. Patricia and Connor, uh, how about you guys kick us off this time? So I think that even just now, as we recognize in our discussions and everything that we're saying that these are good things, like just taking a step back and, and reflecting, like, obviously we have this capability. This is a good discussion. We're talking about good things. Um, we recognize the ability to do good and actually do act on it. So I think it's really having, I mean, it's hard to, to I think, speak about in theory because I think you have to like really wrestle with these things and, and then practice them yourself or oneself. Um, and then, so we take a step back to reflect, I think, on our choices. So the goodness in and of itself and our freedom, our ability to choose and then actually choosing the good. And I think just having to make those distinctions and those types of reflections are really important because I think a lot of the times people will just act, act, act. And the way that that is or the way those actions are is just the way it is. But actually, no, if you take a step back, um, there are reasons why, there are causes, there are options for you to choose. Maybe sometimes it's not in freedom. And so it really does take, and um, John Paul II does speak excuse me, about this in the theology of the body, the self-awareness, which is also um, uniquely human, the practice or the habituation, and really yeah, cultivating, cultivating habits. And again, thinking about um, maybe the origins of this good or the reason of this good, but at the same time, too, it will, will help to think, uh, what are the origins then of, of the evil or the desires of evil and not just taking them like, oh, that's the way it is, but the reflection on that. I remember having some discussions with uh, some Calvinists about uh, sin, and they told me like as a Catholic that we have a low view of sin, right? Like they they emphasize so strongly how the effects of sin, you know, how bad it is. Um, but, you know, as Catholics, we believe that we have that yes, like the fall happened. We are in a fallen state, but our nature is not fallen per se. Um, and that's an important distinction because while we are wounded, we do exist in this kind of liminal space between good and evil where we're, um, we, we can obviously point to instances of, of where we are good and we participate in God's creation. Um, but then we can also point to instances where obviously we do sin and it can be kind of hard to disentangle these things. But I think like we've been talking about, like this meditation on, on Christ becoming incarnate. I mean, he is the good physician, like he will heal our bodies and we will have glorified. It's important to remember that what we are now is not what we will be going into the future, but we do have a promise and we can look at how we were created and where we are oriented to kind of understand that that's what we were made for not simply the limitation because we have a few setbacks. This is not how things will always look. That's uh, I'm trying to think about what 
it would mean to have a low view of sin as opposed to like a high view of sin. It's kind of a strange uh, turn of phrase from your Calvinist friends there. But yeah, I think, uh, so I've, I've, uh, I've actually done a good bit of um, exploration of, you know, reformed theology because I have family members who are um, very reformed and identify as Calvinist. Uh, and I think the, the, the distinction that you're talking about there, Connor, is that they hold that we are um, totally depraved, right? In the, that, that's the T in the tulip, total depravity. Um, we hold that, yes, our, our nature is fallen, but it's not totally corrupted, right? Which is why we, we are sort of in that liminal space that you talked about, Connor. Um, so I, I, I guess it's probably more or less a, it's not a, it's not a difference on the view of sin because we all, we all view sin as, uh, as rebellion against God. It's a difference on the view, uh, or a difference on, um, how much sin has corrupted human nature. Uh, the Eastern church has this idea of sort of a bent nature, um, rather than talking about sort of nature as fallen or unfallen, it's sort of a bent nature, uh, inclined towards, um, towards what is evil. Um, but yeah, I think that's a, it's a good point. Uh, and helps us recognize the the corruption that was introduced in our desires. Bill, you mentioned C.S. Lewis's Four Loves. There's a there's a passage in Mere Christianity where he talks about this a little bit, I think, and he talks about how um, you know all of our desires, uh, the desire for uh, defense, for example, you know, the, the this sort of desire of a of aggression that men often have, um, the desire for sexual intimacy, uh, all of these, the desire for food, all those things are are good desires and, and there's a time and a place, right? There's a time to use that desire to defend your family. There's a time to use that desire to, to know your spouse. There's a time to use that desire to, to feast and enjoy good food. But all those desires also can become inordinate and that's when they become problematic, right? You can, you can misdirect aggression and you can commit murder. You can misdirect your love for food and you can commit gluttony, et cetera, right? So, um, so I think uh, C.S. Lewis was helpful for me uh, in, in, in understanding that as well, how the desires themselves are not bad, but the ways that we use them in disordered ways uh, certainly are. Oh my goodness. Yeah. This is such a rich theme. That's <laughs> so important to unpack further. It's so much, you know, even that phrase bent is so good, Zach, that you brought up and C.S. Lewis uses that phrase in his space trilogy when he talks about um, entering into other worlds and the character, the only way he can explain the human race is the word bent because these unfallen races don't have a word for sin yet. So he says bent. The Greek word for sin is hamartia, which refers to the Greek archers shooting arrows at a, at a target but missing the mark. So to sin is to miss the mark. Because, um, yeah, our desires are for intimacy, love, communion, to get lost. But we get lost the wrong way. We fall off the tracks. John Paul II is such the apostle of hope here. And this is such an important theme because... If, if we, I think the Calvinist point there is like, we, we take ourselves too seriously. We think our sin is too serious as if like it thwarted the whole plan of God and the incarnation was plan B. And it's like, well, no, it, yes, it's a horrific thing and an infinite offense against God, but it's like we, we obsess about ourselves and, and we don't let the Lord breathe, right? The devil's the accuser. The Holy Spirit is the advocate. And the advocate is always calling us to hope, right? Um, this this trajectory of our hearts. I know we're going to talk about eros, and this will this will dovetail into eros and ethos. But we we get when we get mired in our own sin, it's like everything becomes a temptation. It's all bad, and everything's an occasion of sin. Which again, there are occasions of sin, granted. But what John Paul II as an apostle of hope is doing here is saying, look, actually, there are occasions of grace. 
everywhere abounding and everybody and everything and every created good glass of wine, you know, conversations with friends, uh, intimacy are occasions of grace. And the Lord is trying to draw us through these things. He's like, don't reject it. Don't chuck it out the window because, well, this could lead to sin. The Lord is inviting us on like the razor's edge here. It's a daring walk, right? It's like, oh my gosh, God, why would you make everything so beautiful? Right? Because <laughs> he is beauty. And, he, he, and it's a spiritual adventure, as Benedict says, to take this walk of faith. It's so exciting. But I know we're going to get into arrows and all this stuff will explode our minds and hearts. But uh, yeah, the Apostle of Hope, John Paul II, calls us to navigate these waters. Okay, don't be afraid. What did he say constantly in his pontificate? Be not afraid. Afraid of what? He said later, don't be afraid of the truth of who you are. That's what we're talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so let's let's just do the transition into the Eros, which is my final question, Bill. And since you already um, started to dive into that, I'll just stay on you for this question to start out. What is Eros? You talked about C.S. Lewis and the Four Loves. I think he, he has a really good exploration of Eros in that book. Um, but, but how should we think about Eros and Christian theology? And then as we talk about how the desires themselves are not not bad, but it's the disordered way in which we use them, how can we think about Eros in the context of uh, marital love uh, between spouses? Because uh, Christ, you know some, some people, even in Christianity, even still today, and uh, others outside of Christianity, uh, tend to, again, think of like, you know, think of marital love as some sort of weakness, right? Like the strong people or those who don't, don't have it, don't give into it, et cetera. So how can we think about Eros and Christian theology? You know, maybe we can tie in, tie in these themes of the, of the incarnation, Christ redemption. How does this all inform our view of marriage and our view of the human person? Eros is such an important piece in the entire theology of the body catechesis. And actually where we leave off, the reflections on Eros pick up around audience 48 and into the early fifties. So, um, we're going to have to meet again and keep going. But <laughs> uh, first off, let me let me give a teaser trailer for Eros. Pope John Paul II talked about Eros so much in TOB. Pope Benedict XVI began his within his first encyclical, God is Love, Deus Caritas Est, with a redemption of Eros, the whole first half of his first letter. Uh, Pope Francis has mentioned Eros explicitly in The Joy of Love. Cardinal Cantalamesa, the papal preacher, has talked about Eros beautifully in his Lenten homilies. So there's something going on here. There's a great Eastern theologian, Dr. Timothy Petitsis, who's talked about Eros. It's all over the place. Our culture has turned Eros into erotic, and we hear erotic as devout Christians or Catholics, and we're like, oh, that's bad. Erotic, that means pornography or strip clubs or whatever. What is Eros? John Paul defines Eros, and he, he goes way back to the ancient Greeks. He says, Eros is the inner power that attracts us to all that is true, good, and beautiful. Eros is like the fire of the soul. Now, you know, it can be, it can be reduced in a way to sexual passion, Eros, but it's wider and deeper, as the Holy Fathers have explained and many theologians. Um, even saints and mystics way back. So it's the inner power that attracts us to what's true, good, and beautiful. It's the, it's the, it's this like nuclear power within us. And it calls us, it's really the fuel, the, the fuel that gets us to become the gift, get out of ourselves. Eros isn't just for like experiencing sexual passion, but the flourishing of the human creativity and exploration and building and writing poems and making cathedrals and writing symphonies. Eros is, 
is constitutive to every every human life. And it's so important that we, um, I'm so excited to unpack this a little bit further in this chat of what it is. I got to stop right there because I'll keep going. <laughs> so, yeah, I'll, I'll just add a little bit because again, of course, I, I agree with everything that Bill said. So I, I, as far as I also understand, so John Paul II says that, of course, we can't deny the first meaning of Eros, which is really like the pure physical attraction between humans. And that's that's true and that, that's good and that's great. But we, if we look at really, he was looking back at Plato's works, um, he brings us to this other meaning and to de- like a deeper um, understanding for union or communion that draws us back or upward really um, to what is the, div- the divine and our image and likeness in God and even like specifically to Christianity that it is Christ's incarnation that in- affirms all of this and everything that is in our body and any of these desires and how we make it, um, how we, I guess, channel them or um, yeah, move them towards the good, as we've been discussing. And if all of this is true, which obviously I believe, like you guys, <laughs> that it is, if all of this is true, I mean, what a, what a tragedy that so much of our modern sexual culture is based around purely physical encounters, right, in an attempt to in an attempt to fulfill that, in an attempt to to reach the lofty calling of eros and erotic love, we're instead just getting stuck in this cycle of, uh, you know, let's just let's just have a physical encounter, uh, let's let's contracept probably during that physical encounter, right? So it's not even going to be a, a total physical encounter. So let's just have a physical encounter, and then we'll uh, we'll part ways until we want to do that again, you know, until we mutually agree that that's that's going to be a fun thing to do again. And, and what a poverty to miss out on the higher calling of eros and erotic love. And I think that's one of the beauties, maybe the, the chief beauty of the theology of the body that John Paul the Great has left for us here, that he is calling us um, to, to such a higher view of the human person than we often, uh, than we often sort of find ourselves um, called to. Certainly the culture calls us to a much lower view of the human person. And he's saying, no, you all were made for more. Uh, there's so much more here going on. So... Um, yeah, any, any closing comments on that as we look to wrap up this episode, Bill, how about you? Well, there's a wonderful line about your, your point right there from John Paul II's own lips. He says, man must be reconciled to his natural greatness. I love that he says natural greatness. He doesn't say supernatural. He's referring to that God-given gift of Eros. And to your other point, uh, John Paul wrote in Audience 48, which is one beyond what we've done, but it, if we stop at lust which is the withered form, the deficient form of love. He says, if man stops here, he does not experience that fullness of eros, which implies the upward impulse of the human spirit toward what's true, good, and beautiful, so that what's erotic also becomes true, good, and beautiful. I mean, you can't, you, you can't find a more beautiful affirmation of human love and passion. What he does is he sets it on its right trajectory again. Uh, it's meant to lead us to the divine. And Pope Benedict, I could recommend to your listeners, read the first half of God is love, Deus Caritas Est, and you find this amazing reflection from Benedict on the purification of Eros. It can certainly lead us to erotic uh, lust, which is self-destructive, but we can't chuck it out the window because it could lead to that. We have to, Pope Benedict talks about entering the pilgrimage of Eros, a pilgrimage of Eros that takes us all the way to the face of God. In and through the body, that's the only way, right? You get to the supernatural, not by bypassing the natural, but by, like, through it. 
And that's what this Redemption of Eros is all about. Yeah, exactly. So I just want, because Zach was talking about closing words and bringing it all back and tying it together and this understanding or foundational understanding of theology of the body where I completely agree with Bill and that John Paul II is just trying to share the simple message that our bodies teach us about our souls and about God. And then, of course, that drawing upward, There, that's it, that's it very simply. But then, of course, as we are drawn upward, then our souls and God teach us more about our bodies. Well, I, I love those inputs from both of you. Thank you for that. Uh, Patricia and Connor, I'll start with you on this question, but I want to hear from you as well, Bill. If my listeners want to learn more about the theology of the body, in addition to just reading through the audiences themselves, which I would definitely encourage you to do, what other resources would you recommend for learning more about the theology of the body and diving deeper into the this thought? Yes. So it's really interesting because I decided on my own, I think it was just, I think we talked about it in, in the first episode, to go straight into it. But I found and I realized that even when I'm speaking with other people, they're like, this is so dense. This is really hard to talk about. And that's why I even try to help unpack it in these one sentence summaries. Um, so actually, one of the things that I just recently took a part of, and I wouldn't have done it on my own, but thankfully through um, the Aquinas Institute here at Princeton University, recommended this book. Actually, you can't see it, but Connor brought it up. It's called To Love um, by Carl Anderson and Jose Granados, because it, it takes like basically the main themes of um, theology of the body and kind of unpacks them in a simple way, but also even interwoven with a lot of the um, other works of John Paul II and even from before he was Pope or before like what people would not say are quote-unquote spiritual or theological works but even his plays and his poems um, so it still keeps it in the realm of his thinking and the ideas but I guess in a not so heady or philo heavily philosophical way um, yeah, and actually, well, I'll, I'll say it for Bill because I don't know, I'm sure Bill will mention it himself too, but Bill so awesomely has done, um, I guess they're like 15 to 20 minute videos where Bill actually unpacks and reads every single audience amazingly. I don't know, I can't remember how many years or two years or something, that it, three years it, it took him um, to do every single audience. He has a 15 to 20 minute video unpacking them on YouTube. And I'll let Bill say more because for me, thankfully, I've just spent years just on the text and just recently happened to hear from Princeton University and join the discussions about Call to Love. But basically it's been Bill and, and Theology of the Body for me. <laughs> That's so good. Uh, that Thank you for that shout out, Trisha. <laughs> and I, I remember just meeting the both of you, you know, um, a couple times just over a meal and talking. I mean, that's one of the great ways to dig into the catechesis is you do some reading, but face-to-face, -face, small group sharing, just talk about it. That book um, by Carl Anderson is wonderful, Called to Love. Uh, I actually have a PDF of resources I've been building over the years, Zach. I'm happy to send it to you that you could share it if you want to. But let me just mention a couple things from this this PDF called to love is there. Um, there's other great entry level books like Dr. Mary Healy's men and women are from Eden. It's a very small book, a great uh, ent entry into it for like, you know, book studies, small groups. It's got discussion questions and vocabulary terms from TOB. She's built into it. So that's Mary Healy. Um, the theology of the body made simple by father, Anthony Percy. He's an Australian priest. Uh, of course, Christopher West's Theology of the Body for Beginners. 
And Christopher, uh, who's just a dear friend and colleague at the Institute here, he also has a great work called Theology of the Body Explained, which you read. You can read the catechesis, and then you read his book that's like a, the supplement as you move through it. Now, if you're more of a visual learner, <laughs> there's a wonderful series called Humanum. That, uh, it, was a, it was a three-day conference in Rome back in 2014, and if you go to ecefilms.com, it's E-C-C-E films.com, ecefilms.com, the filmmakers have really captured, by, they went all over the world and encountered different religions, uh, marriage ceremonies. They talk about marriage, family, masculinity, and femininity, but it's a Vatican project, and they, it's really theology of the body in cinematic form. It speaks so beautifully about the content we've talked about. Uh, so just giving yourself a walk through those six episodes, each 15 minutes a piece gives you this visual dynamic with great scholars. Dr. Peter Kraft is in there um, talking about really essentially theology of the body without saying it. So there's lots of different, you know, from the highly academic to the like basic entry level. Um, and yeah, the Institute where I teach is of course always there. We do five day retreats where we immerse in the, in the primary, you know, f- source material but we do it also through retreat style. Um, and we do that throughout the year, different courses. That's tobinstitute.org. Great. Well, thanks for those resources. I'm going to, uh, I was looking them up as you were saying them, Bill, and I'm going to link them in the show notes. If you can send me that, that PDF, I'll also make that available to listeners as well so they can have recourse to all those resources. And I want to thank all three of you for coming on and doing these four episodes with me. It's been a really good foundational study of the theology of the body uh it's you know it's been great it's also a little bit frustrating because there's so many more things we want to dive (laughs) deep on and we just have to do a really surface level uh cursory overview but i really appreciate your time and your forbearance in doing that so thank you so much uh and uh thanks for joining me my pleasure thanks for the opportunity it's been really it's been a great run thank you Thanks so much. It was really fun. Happy to be here. Thank you very much. I will reiterate to listeners that if you want to reach out to any of the guests on the show, I'd be happy to connect you. You can email me, Zach, Z-A-C, at creedalcatholic.com. And since Bill has worked on this professionally for many years, he's offered to disengage directly with any listeners. So if you want to email Bill and ask a question, Donahy. that's B-D-O-N-A-G-H-Y, at tobinstitute.org. So feel free to reach out to Bill, just ask a question directly and engage, uh, engage with him there. So thank you so much. And until next time, God bless you.